This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan. Today, we're catching up with Bob Freeban. Bob runs a busy agricultural consultancy business while also running his own farm with his wife Sue at Coonabarabran. Bob is a wealth of knowledge on managing light soils, tropical grasses and dual purpose cereals. And in this episode, you'll hear why he has been credited with transforming agriculture in the central west of New South Wales, particularly around Coonabarabran. You'll hear Bob talk about how he and others within the Department of Ag at the time identified problems in the farming system, conducted research to solve the problem, and then worked with farmers to help them make productive changes on farm. Local Land Services Mixed Farming Officer Callan Thompson sat down with Bob as he shared his 55 years of experience and his hopes for the future of agriculture. Bob, thanks for joining me on this podcast. Many of our listeners will know you from your time at DPI, your time as a consultant and from your article in The Land, but I'd really like to know a bit more about your career. So first of all, what made you decide to become an agronomist? Well, I suppose we're going back a long time, Callum, but I left school in 1962 and those days the Department of Ag had scholarships and I applied for one of those and was fortunate enough to get it. And I guess I was a farmer's son and always had a interest. I had plots as a kid in junior farmers testing different varieties. So I guess it was almost a natural to follow that career. So I've been a district agronomist since 1967 and what that's 55 years in the job now. Yeah. And did you... um start off as a district agronomist in Coonabarabran? Yes, I spent two years at Tamora as an agronomist in training and very fortunate to be under some great researchers. Roger Southwood was the pasture agronomist, a young guy from Africa, and Fred Mengerson was the oat breeder and Ron Martin the wheat breeder, and what a start to have. After two years there, I was appointed to Coonabarabran and spent six months with Bob Commel at Gunnedah's district agronomist. So I was a district agronomist at 21 years of age, which those days wasn't uncommon, but it is days. Yeah, for sure. So where did you study, Bob? Wagga, and then later on I did a post-degree at Hawkesbury Ag College. So you took on the role at Coonabarabran. We've got some beautiful soils here at Coonabarabran, but we've also got fairly sandy, acidic soils. How did you go about increasing the productivity on these soil types? Things don't happen overnight. When I first came to Coonabarabran, the light soils were regarded poorly and the people that had these properties were almost called poverty farmers. And even the Department of Ag said, we've done a lot of research in this, but there's not much we can do. That was a challenge, which sort of followed my whole career. There was a lot of things happening on light soils in Western Australia and South Australia, Victoria, the 90 mile desert in that era. And I guess I was fortunate to go and visit those areas early in my career with the department's endorsement. And from that started a research program. District agronomists spent a fair bit of their time doing research. 
it was a slow process and you can't just have a one-year trial data and say, look, this grows here. You've got to have these trials go for years to make sure they're going to be long-term persistent and long-term productive. So I guess that's how I started, Callum. It was a challenge and that's been a major focus of my life as a district agronomist and now as a consultant. One of the big learnings for farmers in this area and for yourself is the value of lime in for those light soils. Yeah, I guess I've taken a slightly different view. Lime is valuable and very important, but a lot of our soils are acid right through the profile. So plant types, and back in my early days, we'd send soil samples to our soils laboratory at Rydalmere and Hawkesbury Ag, and the indicator plants were all wrong. We didn't understand collectively through the department and agriculture that you needed acid-tolerant plants. So the first breakthrough I put down to was Dr. John Gladstone's in Western Australia, who first professionally documented that Ceredella could thrive in acid soils. And from a trip I went to Western Australia in my early days, I was able to bring some seed back and have that in trials. And after three or four years of trials, we thought, we've really got something here. It's the only thing surviving in some of our very acid sites. So that was the first breakthrough, an acid soil-tolerant legume and then later came consul lovegrass or perennial grass and then premier digit grass and collectively with this once we had acid tolerant plants we could work out what the soil fertility issues were and fortunately they were fairly straightforward but nothing responded until we had acid tolerant plants. Yeah that's a great point because as you say our soils locally are so deeply acidic there's other areas where the soil's only acidic on the topsoil and lime might benefit that. So Bob tell me a bit about the nutrition, what were the nutrition issues that you were finding in these soils? It's almost like agriculture up till the 80s had decided using fertilisers to correct soil deficiencies in pastures didn't go beyond a certain limit. For example, in this part of the world, farmers in the higher country at Cooler and around Dunedoo, they used fertiliser way back in the 50s onwards, but areas like Coonabarabin, Mindoran and further north and west, except for the odd individual hardly ever used fertiliser on pastures and that badly compromised our production. So back in the 80s, a number of district agronomists and researchers, we combined and collectively we ran about 130 pasture fertiliser trials and we tabulated all of that data. I think one of the mistakes of early district agronomists was that we did lots of trials and didn't properly record them, but we learned from the 80s onwards that you've got to record this or history will have to repeat itself in another decade or so. So all of that is documented, but we had to, one, get the data that it worked over a number of seasons, and then we had to have an extension program that really promoted these results. And even today, you're probably still coming across farmers that haven't adopted that technology, whereas some have radically changed what they're doing. What did you do in that extension process? I guess it was just the typical combined role. We had trials, lots of trials. We had field days and you had to promote them properly. You had to document it. You had to write it up, press articles, sometimes TV. It's like a lot of things you're finding. It's not a one-day wonder. We've got some information. Everybody adopted it. I remember giving a paper to Australian Agronomy Conference showing that it was at least seven years before an uptake was significant in pasture fertilizer usage. And several researchers said to me, that's not uncommon when you're trying to introduce something that's a radical change to what's happened before. So it was hard work and you have to battle some of these things for years if you're going to make progress. You've got to have good data and that was the first requirement and then you had to have a good extension program 
And that included day-to-day property visits on individuals and included conferences and seminars and field days. I think field days were very critical. Yeah. And you seem to embrace those farmers who act as champions who exactly. take it on early. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I can remember the early days, for example, a farmer had been away, Stan King, the Department of Ag, did a video on him which ended up going on TV much cruder technology than what we have available today, but it was powerful stuff when you had a farmer get up and say, well, look, you know, I'm running four times more stock than I used to and sell them better and better ground cover and all that sort of thing. I did my work experience with you and I remember being out at Mobler, which was my grandparents' place, yep. with Brian Matthews doing some of these sort of trials, which uh, I think was a good step in my career as an agronomist. I think a good point about that, Callum, is that it wasn't just a district agronomist doing this. We had access, like Brian Matthews was termed a field assistant, and he was fantastic. And that's the reason we could run a lot of trials, that we had people that had that ability to provide all that. And he became a very successful agronomist and now landholder after that. But that was a vital part of what the Department of Ag could do. And I would emphasise to the administration today to provide guys like you with support so you can do a lot of this trial work because you can't do it on your own when you've got a thousand other things to do. So, Bob, we spoke briefly about digit grass and it's really transformed this district and others. How did you originally find out about it? Go back a little bit before digit. Consul Lovegrass was the first breakthrough of a perennial grass that thrived on acid country. And going go back to my early days at Tamora, Roger Southward, was actually told by the department hierarchy to discontinue trials looking at the lovegrass species. I believe Roger was the first one to say there's a role for this, not just in northern New South Wales, but southern and central. And here we are 50 years later now realising how true that was. Bill Johnson took on some of these lovegrasses and facilitated with DPI the release of consul lovegrass. And that's a pretty tough species. And that was the first breakthrough. So we had a winter legume in Ceredella. We had a long-term living perennial grass and consul. But consul was almost too good in that it snatched all the autumn water and all the spring water, very hard to grow a legume with it. And Premier Digit turned out to be much more idealist as well as very long-term persistent. How did we get it? Department of Ag, probably Lester McCormack and probably Bob McGuffick were instrumental in putting together and Warren MacDonald, a series of trials and they'd included every tropical grass they could find. And we had a trial at Mobler, your grandparents' property. And all of a sudden on this soil of about 4.1, 38% aluminium, wasn't only consul that survived, but also premier digit. So that was the big breakthrough. We found something that liked those soils and then we increased those trials to many other sites. But it's now universally accepted that premier digit is long-term persistent, productive and good quality if well managed. Yeah. I imagine, Bob, Things, it's quite easy for us now to find out information on new varieties and species and things like that because we have the internet, we have emails. A lot of the work you're doing back then would have involved a fair bit of time on the phone after hours, I'd imagine. Probably a bit like yourself, a good district agronomist had to be available 24 hours of the day, I think. <laughs> that's not accepted, I suppose, but that's <laughs> the way it works out. And I think you've got to become well-known in your district, you've got to understand the farmer's point of view and the more farmers you meet and work with the more you do. I think your grandfather Mark Beresford was a classic case. He not only was he a great trial cooperator but he also (laughs) 
sold the story like you only had to drive past your, his property and if he saw you, you were there for an inspection. <laughs> so that was a key part of it. The key farmers weren't necessarily the best or the whatever, but they enthusiastic farmers were a very important part of it. My grandfather actually gave me a copy of your book, Light Souls, Managing Them Better, and I think it sat on my bedside table all through uni. Bob, I wanted to talk a bit about dual-purpose cereals because they've also changed so many farm businesses in the Central West. Can you tell me about how you went about introducing the concept, particularly how you got producers to actually take it up? Dual-purpose crops have always been an important part of, not always, but for 100 years, but they were often sort of an afterthought. Again, I'll go back to my time at Tamora Research Centre where Fred Mengerson, the oat breeder, was breeding varieties like Cuba, Coolabar oats, and you had Ron Martin well into dual-purpose wheats, although it was early days then. But there had been dual-purpose wheats going back to the 60s, 50s, but getting the maturity right for a lot of Central West areas was his challenge and others. And I went for a trip to the United States on a rotary group study tour back in the 70s, and that was inspirational in that there was a lot of dual-purpose wheats. And again, it was a little bit of a fight with bureaucracy, which didn't want to endorse a bit of radical change, which I guess we were sort of seen to be doing. But there's a lot of people involved in that working. One, you've got to have the trial and the data, which we were an important part of that. You had to have the plant breeders. Fortunately, you had the Ron Martins right behind it. And Sydney University were really good there. And you had to have an administration which was in the process of changing so that dual-purpose wheats and triticales, as well as oats, became an important part of the business. And I guess people in more recent years promoting dual-purpose canolas have probably come up against a bit of opposition initially, but it's now a very established part of many properties. We have a lot of producers who are growing dual-purpose cereals, and I find that lots of people are growing them, but there's not everybody's making as much money out of them as what they probably could. Have you got any pointers for producers who are thinking about trying to do it better? Well, one of my most recent articles in the land was trying to focus on, one is fallow management. I so often, and you probably so often go onto a property, oh yeah, we're going to sow dual purpose crops there, but it's got weeds a foot high and sucked all the subsoil moisture out of it and probably depleted available nitrogen. I've always grown, believe you've got to grow it just like you grow a wheat crop or a barley crop or a chickpea crop. You've got to conserve fallow moisture efficiently. Other keys, I think, is sowing early. And this was always a difficulty with sowing trials, getting the seed through the system in time to sow what we're promoting. You know, like last year, we sowed 18th of February. This year, we're about to sow probably next week, which is late February. You've got to be right on the ball. You've got to have good stored moisture. You've got to have stubble retention to keep the moisture as close to the surface. And you've got to be ready to go to drop of a hat. I think they're the key issues that have been neglected a bit and obviously comes into that story is the same as wheat, high soil fertility, rotations for disease control and weed control and that sort of thing. One of the reasons I've seen people not get the grain yields at the back end of put down to a nitrogen story because our protein can often be a bit low, which would indicate that they're probably not getting enough. Is that something that you've seen in? I think so, Callum, and, and it's probably a bit to do with grazing too long. That's always a dilemma. As a farmer, we know that. We know we should be taking stock off August onwards, but hang on, those steers are worth $5.50 a kilo. I think I'll put another month's feed on them, and that's going to 
compromise my grain yield and that could be a good decision. You've got to weigh that up. You can make, even in our own case, we can make up to $1,500 a hectare just from the meat you produce on dual-purpose crops. If you cut that meat back a bit by taking stock off a bit, you could make a fair return on grain too, depending on the year. Yeah, and I guess it's understanding what you're trying to achieve with that, what your market's yeah, exactly. grain and livestock are doing. Yeah. So, Bob, after you finished working with DPI, you became a consultant but also a farmer. Can you tell me a bit about your farm? Well, it's interesting. I had trials on the farm we bought back in the 70s and 80s. <laughs> it's a light soil property that one of the old pearly wool farmers who's since passed away said, Bob, why did you guys buy one of the third worst properties in the district. <laughs> he was a good farmer too, but you go back to his history and you could grow loose and good weeds on the best soils as you started this talk off. There's a lot of good soils in this district. And guys, you couldn't grow wheat or loose it very well on your lighter country. That's why they were regarded as poor properties. But I think with today's technology, we've actually done better in the last 12 years from a pasture perspective on the lighter country than the heavy country. We're in the middle of a drought, we get 10 mils. That's useless on heavy country, but on light country, we can get a pick off our tropical grasses or if it's autumn, our serradellas will start germinating. Or we can get our oats in on 10 mils, whereas the heavy soil guy wants 30 or 40 mils. So we've had winter feed, whereas heavy soil guys haven't. It's been a great experience to have our own property and to show in a practical sense that it's payable. It's viable on its own right and probably in difficult years, it's even been more viable than the so-called good country of the district. Yeah, I tend to agree wholeheartedly with that, Bob. I noticed we've got on our own place a mixture of beautiful black cracking soils and some fairly ordinary light soils. And through the drought, we pretty much only had stock on our light country. Our heavy country didn't get enough rainfall to respond. And I did notice that coming out of the drought, our light country, which a lot of it does have tropical grasses on it, it survived the drought a lot better than our native species did on our heavy country. And I think that's a lot to do with the fact that they're getting that little bit of rainfall event. They're able to grow and fill those reserves where the heavy country didn't seem to do that. That's right. And when you're in a drought, it's often the case, the black soil or heavy red soil properties are in drought months longer because when a drought breaks, sometimes it's only showers, we can get going on lighter country, whereas they're waiting for that big fall of rain. Or even during the drought, you know, we had some periods where we had quite good pasture growth, whereas the heavy soil guys just had nothing. So, Bob, you're running mainly beef cattle? We run just beef cattle. We just buy steers at around about 250 kilos and sell them about 500. It's not necessarily the best business to run, but when you want a low labour business, you can do that with few problems, I believe. I don't want everybody to just run store steers and buy store steers and fat them. There's no steers for left for us. <laughs> there's more money in breeding and that sort of thing. But there's a good business, particularly if you're running it and you've also got another job where you're very busy. At. And so your feed base is generally your tropical grasses with a legume yeah. in with it and forage oats? We have about 20% dual purpose crop. This year we're growing triticale because the oat story, unfortunately, there's no breeding of dual purpose oats in Australia. So varieties like what we've been growing are all rust susceptible. So we're having a go at triticale this year. Wind habit triticale, done very well in your trials and resistant to rust. So hopefully your data and other, my gut feeling is that a dual purpose triticale will do everything a dual purpose oat. 
wheel, light acid soils too. 20% of that, so that's sown on and right through summer, we'll spray that up to five times the fallow for total weed control. Had to go to double knock because of weed issues, resistance to herbicide. And we've got 57% of the property tropical grass and the remainder about 30% of native grasses. And I believe they all have a role so that whenever it rains, hopefully there's something going to grow there. Something I get asked a lot about is the difference between tropical pastures and native grass pastures. And because I spend a lot of time talking about tropicals, people think that I'm not interested in natives, but we often find because they're not growing so far into the colder months that we're actually getting better clover and legume growth in those sort of paddocks than we are tropicals. I think that's a really good point. One of these days, you guys will probably have programs, apps or whatever, that'll give you a better guide as to what's the ideal percentage. I really don't know. Our balance is maybe, okay, 30% natives. And you're right, that's often much better clover and cerradella in those than the tropicals. So if we went to all tropicals, we might be, yes, getting a lot more summer production, but that might be expensive winter production. So there's a balance there. And it'll be different west of the mountains where it's warmer, west of the Warren Bungles in our situation, and they have a shorter winter period. We have a longer one. I don't think there's a magic answer of what the ratio is, and it would depend on your enterprise. The other thing I haven't mentioned, when you're trading animals like us, part of your drought management, not only having hay put aside or silage, but also we'll sell steers today. If we're heading into a drought, or if the signs are we're heading into a drought, we won't replace them, but the season's pretty good, we'll replace those almost straight away. So Bob, one thing that I wanted to ask you is there anything that you've learnt from managing your own farm that you didn't pick up as an agronomist? Oh, heaps. <laughs> <laughs> I think as an agronomist, you're too focused on just the pastures and the crop, which when you buy a farm, all of a sudden, we've got bloody kangaroos coming in from next door. So fencing is a big issue. What sort of fences? Laneways, the importance of animal management. I never took agronomists should be better at animal management than I probably was. There's all these practices, the sort of cattle yards. And as you get older, you're going to modify them so you're less likely to get kicked and things like that. And water supply, that was a lot of us were a bit slack being prepared for this last drought. And since the drought, we've fortunately upgraded our water supply, even though we've had to go pretty deep and expensive to get it. But we have to think forward a little bit better than what maybe I would have thought as an agronomist only. Yeah. It's funny you say that about pasture. My wife's always saying that I focus too much on the pasture and it'd be nice if we'd actually be allowed to graze it at some stage. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, good grazing management is often a compromise between what's best for that pasture and what's best for those animals that you're trying to finish and get off the place. And sometimes you do graze a little bit early and sometimes you do graze a little bit heavier, but same token, you've got to appreciate if you don't look after those grasses, they're not going to look after you. Yeah. Bob, I know you live and breathe your work and it's quite obvious that you have a lot of passion for agronomy and for agriculture. What drives that passion? Whatever you do in life, it's good if you can figure out, and I guess as a young agronomist, it takes a while to get familiar with everything and what are the challenges. I think I was very fortunate. There were some clear challenges. That light country was useless. Let's change that. Some weeds were almost uncontrollable, like blue heliotrope. Let's challenge that. Dual-purpose crops. I know it's more difficult as the world becomes more complicated, but I think there's still plenty of room for challenges for agronomists and LLS or private 
and I guess try to pick up on something where there looks to be a real hole and work on that. And that can be a passion for life or just five or 10 years, that's solved, then go on to something else. But I think if we've got a passion, it makes life enjoyable, rewarding, it's just a good way to be. And so, Bob, you mentioned you grew up on a farm, but you didn't grow up in Coonabarabran. And I imagine through your career, you've had opportunities to move to other areas. What made you stay in a small country town, particularly this one? Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because back in my days of starting, you didn't have mobile phones or anything. I hardly even knew where Coonabarabran was. And I wrote to the council to find out if they had a rugby team. They didn't then. They had rugby league. That was all right. I've got all the details on the bureau I met and I thought that's not a bad climate (laughs) Then I married a girl who became director of nursing so there were plenty of family reasons why to stay here and I I just feel the philosophy of my early days was you should move every five years or so not just in department of ag but teaching and everything and I think today we realize that particularly in agriculture you need to be a fair while in a district to really get to understand it and get work out how's the best way to get messages out and where to run trials and all that sort of thing. So it's a lifetime challenge in many respects. Towards the end of my career, I became a regional director based at Gunnada, but I still lived at Gunnabarabin. And that was good. That was rewarding. Every small town anywhere in Australia, probably the same people say it's great here. Gunnabarabin's no different. And I know you've been involved in rugby and involved in a lot of community groups and things like that in Coonar in your time. Yeah, well, you've got to be mad. So I was a rugby referee for probably 30 years. And one minute you've got half the side, half the people in the field think you've made the right decision, the other half wrong. Next minute it's the opposite way. So. <laughs> I imagine that would have been a bit difficult when a lot of those people were your clients that you're trying to get yeah, to uh, right. work with. Sometimes you had to send them off. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, I just have one more question and it's a bigger picture one. I just want to know what you think the next digit grass or next Cerradella is. And by that, I mean, what do you think is the next big thing that's going to drive production for our farmers? I look at Cerradella and tropical grass. Those changes were basically driven by the district agronomists, which is equivalent to what you're doing now, the LLS. So for the LLS agronomists to have the ability to do trials like we did, because often when you start research, you don't have a clue the outcome. But we've had very little upgrade in tropical grass species, winter legumes for quite some time now. And they were the bread and butter of the district agronomist type person. So if I had a plea to provide some resources, this is not a commercial, I wasn't prompted (laughs) to say this, but I look at how the strength of what I was able to do was the backup technical support I had. And that's such a key part of it. So If you could have a Brian Matthews type person as a technical assistant, you could run heaps more trials. And I think it is a real concern. We haven't had a breakthrough in tropical grass. There must be other species out there. Why did John Gladstone have success in the lupin industry? One, he found a plant that didn't shatter. Then someone overseas found a plant that wasn't bitter. They bred them and put them together. All of a sudden, you got a new crop. I think there's a huge future for native grasses to be commercial varieties, but at the moment everything shatters. No one's selected for better seedling vigour or better summer production or better whatever, but that's going to be a big job. That's going to be a lot of trials for a lot of years to sort of sort that out. I'm not really answering your question, but I think try and figure out where there are gaps. I look at my property and think, yeah, we've improved it, but by God, the next generation could probably approve it a lot more again. There's still gaps out there. 
putting the effort into how do we solve that is the challenge. Yeah, Bob, I think you've answered that question very well. And I had the pleasure of working with Brian for two years of my career, and I reckon it was some of the best two years. So I'd be more than happy to have Brian back <laughs> if he'd come back from farming. Bob, I'd just like to thank you for giving up your time today. It was really good. I think our listeners are going to get a lot of out of this conversation. And thanks very much for your time. My pleasure, Callum. And thank you for the opportunity to do a bit of skiing. Okay, <laughs> cheers. Thanks, Bob. This episode was produced as part of Central West Local Land Services' ADAPT project through funding from the Australian Government's National Land Care Program. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Nerily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.